Welcome back to The Late Set. My name is Nate Chenin. I am Greg Bryant. Thank you for staying with us. And uh, man, if you dig this show, if you dug episode number one, we want to let you know it comes from Public Radio WRTI. Click donate now at WRTI.org so programs like this can keep coming to your ears. We want to send out uh, congratulations today to Jahari Stampley, an amazing pianist that you, Nate, saw at the Herbie Hancock competition. And uh, you had a chance to write about it. We're calling this episode eyes on the prize, or maybe we should call it how to win a fest fight. Oh, oh, (laughs) I hear you there. Yeah, Jahari Stampley, man. He is a a very energetic young pianist now studying at the Manhattan School of Music, but he, he cut his teeth in Chicago, born and raised, and has a really interesting story. But what was striking about his performance in the Hancock competition finals was like this idea of an almost uncontainable exuberance. He was just going for it. You talk about uh, competitive fire. We saw that and we heard that uh, in this young man's playing on Sunday night. That's awesome. And we're also going to be talking to another previous winner of this same competition back when it was known as the Thelonious Monk competition, Joshua Redman later on. So stay tuned for that. But um, back to Jahari, man, I tell you, if I were uh, a young pianist uh, that just won this competition, like Jahari, I would be jumping up and down for joy because uh, $50,000, number one, that's mm-hmm. a lot of money to, yeah. to start a career, and he deserves that. But also, uh, in your lead, he's got a press quote that he can use for generations in his <laughs> press packet by the number one jazz writer. But I got to ask you, I feel like almost the the real lead is buried. Is the $50,000 and the promise of career prominence the real story here? Or are competitions sort of fading in that effectiveness? Well, I'll tell you, you know, one thing I didn't mention in my piece, and, and thank you, Greg, for pointing out that I buried the lead. But <laughs> um, I was sitting in the brand new Perelman Auditorium, um, this, you know, incredible marble cube in lower Manhattan. And uh, it so happened that I was sitting in the row directly in front of the judges. Wow. And so Herbie Hancock was over my right shoulder, <laughs> and I could hear the the low murmuring appreciative noises that he made as the three <laughs> finalists were were making their points. You know, this is a judges panel that this year included not only the illustrious Herbie Hancock, namesake of the Herbie Hancock Institute, but also Bill Sharlap, Orrin Evans, our our guest on uh, episode one, Hiromi. Um, Danilo Perez. I mean, talk about a high Jedi council. And so if I were one of those finalists and, you know, let's just say if I were Jahari Stampley, to be honest, the thing that I would be most excited about was the approval of that panel, mm-hmm. you know, just to mm-hmm. be able to stand there and say, Herbie Hancock is handing me this award right now. Yeah. And these other pianists, all of my heroes, they chose me. 
And that to me is like, that's got to be the ultimate feeling. That's a huge endorsement and an amazing distinction. I will say, though, uh, if I were Jahari, mm -hmm. I would be beaming from uh, ear to ear with, with a Kool-Aid smile. But I would also be wondering, hmm, who else is in this audience? And I'll put it back to you, Nate. Did you see any record company executives that you recognized or management people or agencies? It was a it was a very industry thick audience. Okay. That's for sure. Okay. Um, but and we'll get into this a little bit later. 30 years ago, when Joshua Redman won the Monk competition, it was like Shark Tank, <laughs> you know? Um, he had offers from several leading major labels, and that is not the scenario we find ourselves in today. I think it's, you know, if you're listening to the show, you, you probably don't need us to tell you that times are a little different mm -hmm. uh, for emerging artists. But to have this laurel, it's a real boost. I mean, Jahari Stampley is not a name that most people in the international jazz community were were speaking um, prior to this week. Right. And his name is on everybody's lips right now, and I think mm -hmm. deservedly so. But what does that mean? I think that's the question you're getting at, yeah. right? Um, how does that translate? You yeah. know, mm -hmm. um, what does clout mean in material terms? Exactly. Uh, and that is a that's a very good question. Yeah. Well, you know, let's let's be real here. $50,000, $20,000, even $1,000 for a rising jazz musician, that's a huge payout. And I don't mean to harp on uh, the money or the honorarium, but if we translate into gig terminologies, that those are dollars, those are opportunities that an artist may never see again. Mm. Um, jazz is because you love it, because you want to contribute to it, um, but you don't do it for the promise of... Uh, a payout. You do it for, as you said earlier, uh, the acclaim of your elders, the acclaim of new generations who are trying to figure out what this art means. Um, but maybe we should go back very quickly to a time where it did mean something. You've brought in a very special box set from uh, Norman Grant's Jazz at the Philharmonic today. Yeah, this is a this is a pretty incredible uh, ten CD box that Mosaic Records put out earlier this year. Uh, we will be including it in the year-end gift guide at WRTI, but it's called Classic Jazz at the Philharmonic Jam Sessions, 1950 to 1957. And if you are familiar with this body of work, your your wheels are turning right now. You're thinking about Ben Webster and Oscar Peterson and, you know, uh, Flip Phillips. And one thing that brings this box into our orbit today is this idea of the gladiatorial combat, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because I think that it has become... Uh, it's become diminished in contemporary jazz culture, for better or for worse. I, I could quite honestly argue either way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was a time where one of the prevailing tropes about this music was that it was a heroic art. It was a, a form of music that often resembled battle. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people talked about tenor battles specifically, right? Mm -hmm. You know, two tenor saxophonists, two or more going at each other. Right. Um, and trying to raise the bar in terms of complexity or pure fire. Right. 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 In Norman Grant's Jazz at the Philharmonic concerts, this was, uh, you know, quite savvily staged. And, and I don't mean staged like faked, but I mean presented in a way that was, you know, heightened. That's a key word, though, though uh, presentation. Mm -hmm. Before we go on, let's listen to 
the challenge is. Flip Phillips is here as well as Ben Webster. Uh, let's listen and come back for some more uh, dialogue. The Challenges, Jazz at the Philharmonic, and uh, produced by Norman Grants. I want to go to a Norman Grants quote right here. Yeah. Uh, he says, I happen to like the jam session because I'm a great believer in the individual in any art. I don't think it's difficult to argue that each day we have more and more conformity in our lives and less opportunity for the individual, whether in the state politically or in a business economy, and the same with music. I really feel jazz as I know it will vanish because where is the young player going to get an apprenticeship? Where is he going to sit in? Where is he going to get a sound playing in a band? Ella had to fight the whole chick web band when she went to the bandstand. Same with Sarah. There won't even be bands. It's a question of standards. I'm not looking backwards or being nostalgic. I just don't know how the environment in the future can nurture the individual. Very interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this is a quote that Norman Grants gave in 1987 when he was uh, selling his Pablo records to Fantasy. And it's included in the notes to this mosaic box. Um, and man, for one thing, I think it's important to note that this quote was from 1987 because that is the year that Jazz at Lincoln Center gets started. Mm -hmm. And when he says, you know, this music doesn't have a future, um, he did not realize that there was actually some some seeds being planted. Right. Um, but it's interesting to think about that question of like the individual um, and how he places it in diametric opposition to the idea of the collective. Mm -hmm. I have enormous admiration for Norman Grants and what he did, but I... I take issue with it, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Um, it kind of feels a little bit like Reaganomics to me. Interesting. It, it feels conservative. Uh-huh. Um, this idea that, like, the reason to put a jam session together is because you want to give, you want to create an opportunity for the the great hero to, you know, deliver the, the grand majestic statement. Um, it just feels... Uh, it feels out of sync with what I believe the beauty of this music to be. Right. Which is why competitions may have some work to do. Mm. Okay. We All have right. the DC Grand Prix as the DC Jazz Festival. That's one that honors bands. But nearly every other competition that we have is focused on just what you said. We want to be uh, marketing the next superhero in our music, whether he looks the part to match his hubris, that may be a strong word, but he has to have or she has to have the complete package so that we can identify them easily among their peers. We don't go to jam sessions anymore to see talent. We don't go out late at night. We're waiting for a competition to make someone ascendant. And I think as good as it is, I think that model is outdated and we need to look for some more solutions for how to promote our music. Mm. Well, this is an interesting point because the crowning of a, a young winner of one of these competitions, the Hancock or the Monk competition, call it what you will, it does have a commercial undertow because 
you know, how many times have you seen um, Jasmia Horn or uh, Melissa Aldana or, you know, um, Tigran Hamasian or yeah. whoever um, presented by an organization and they say, oh, this person is so great. They won the monk competition <laughs> in such and such a year. Yeah. You know, it's it's become yeah. a, you know, it, it's it's the equivalent of like um, Oprah's book club sticker on the jacket of, yeah. a, of a book cover. It's a mighty you know? endorsement. Um, and, and so there is a sort of audience expanding function of this thing. But I think you're asking more than one question uh, wrapped into one, which is like, how do we expand the audience on the whole? You know, it's mm-hmm. not just how do we catch eyes and ears. It's right. like, how do we grow the base for this thing? Um, and focus on the heroic individual may no longer be the answer to that question. That's my argument right now. You know, and I think of someone like Norman Grants, who, again, programming, you said that word earlier, that was his bread and butter. He took his festival on the road and his festival uh, was a series of these um, playoffs, if you will, between, you know, a who's who of this music before they were household names. Um, I think that those same budgets could be allocated to making room uh, for young bands uh, or even young stars who need that um, tour support, who need that little bit of a boost behind a new album. You know, it's difficult to really get on the road and do your thing without any money. And if the money's going to, you know, one person, it's hard to argue for a healthy gig ecosystem. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Hancock competition, when you win or even place, you are now on the radar of a sort of village of accomplished musicians who recognize something in what you're doing. And they're around, and if you are open to it, I think they're there to put a hand on your shoulder and say, hold on a minute. <laughs> or, or keep going, keep yeah. going, I got you. Yeah. You know, I hear what you're trying to do. Ultimately, the focus, you know, naturally falls on, you know, the, the sort of combative aspect of this. You know, who won? Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. the winner? Right. right. That's, that's human nature. It is. But ultimately... If you're on that stage at all, you know, as a semifinalist, you, you've already entered a, a, a very elite circumstance and you're being heard by, you know, these esteemed judges and by people like me and by, you know, many others in the industry. But let's get back to this idea of like the actual combat, mm-hmm. because the thing about a competition is, you know, you hear these pianists or saxophonists or whatever the instrument is, you hear them one after the other. Right. 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 You don't necessarily hear them on the same stage going at each other. Truth. <laughs> which is what the Truth. which is what the jazz at the Philharmonic <laughs> model was more like. And and you know, what we you know, we used to read about um when Ralph Ellison would talk about Kansas City. Yeah. Uh, back yeah. in the day. Mm-hmm. Um and that actually raises a a a, a clip that I want to toss to. Okay. Let's just drop the needle. I'm not gonna set this up. From the movie Kansas City, that's uh, Craig Handy, tenor saxophonist, 
And our guest today, Joshua Redman, also on tenor saxophone in the movie Kansas City that was uh, widely successful and put a bit of a spotlight on something that used to go down all the time back in the day, the cutting contest. And one of those gents is here with us today. We're really excited about it. Uh, Thelonious Monk competition winner, Joshua Redman. Here we go. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us on The Late Set. What a pleasure to have you. We are in competition season. The Hancock competition just concluded, formerly known, of course, as the Thelonious Monk competition. And you've got some history with this event. Yeah, just some slight history, minor history. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, and I thought, who better but you to, to give us a little perspective on the ins and outs of competition. So I guess I wanted to start by setting the scene 1991, uh, November, and and you go down to D.C. and take part in the Monk competition, and you end up taking first place, and it was like the shot heard around the world, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and so I wondered if you could sort of bring us back there. What was that experience like for you? What was going through your head uh, as you as you went through it? Sure. Well, um, in a way, you're bringing me back there. I've <laughs> I've been trying to no, I, I haven't been trying to run away from it, but it it it, it is um <laughs> you know it 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 was it's far in the rearview mirror uh right now. But you know, I think I'm at that stage in life where um you know I can <laughs> I can confront uh, more easily some things that maybe I feel like I've been running from <laughs> earlier in life. Um, 1991, I, I had graduated college in June of 91, and I ended up moving to New York as a kind of last minute whim almost. I I, I decided I wanted to take a year off. I was on my way to law school. I thought. But um, mm-hmm. but it was yeah, it was like maybe a couple months before I graduated that I found out that there was a place with a bunch of incredible musicians, friends of mine whom I had met in uh, in Boston, um, many musicians whom whom you know. They had a space in the house there, and uh, uh, basically it was the living room. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I moved uh, I moved down to New York and uh, was living with them, and uh, that was June of '91, and. Very quickly, I kind of became immersed in the music scene in New York and uh, started playing a lot and started gigging around town with my peers, started getting to work with uh, some of my peers and also some older musicians, um, including my father. He hired me to start playing with him. I was just super lucky. You know, I was just in the right places at the right time and, you know, around the right folks. And I was able to, you know, within a few months of being in New York, I was able to kind of support myself playing the music that I love to play with the musicians I love to play it with. As far as the um, the Monk competition, so yes, I mean, I was vaguely aware that it was saxophone that year. And maybe, you know, for, for quite some time, I think it had been just piano. And then right. maybe the year before was the first year that they they, op- they they made it a non-piano competition. I think it was a trumpet competition. The saxophone number was called. You know? yeah. and, um, and I got the tape in, and I think it was like a few days late, and, and I should have been disqualified, to be honest. But um, hmm. yeah, I mean, I, 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 and then I was accepted, obviously, to the semifinals. And then 
I mean, it's kind of a blur. I mean, my my mm-hmm. God. I mean, like that year was just. I mean, every year, like every year is incredible, but it was so stacked. So you came in first. Eric Alexander came in second, and third place was shared by Chris Potter and Tim Warfield. Ah, and, yes, that's right. Yeah. And so, I mean, that is a that's kind of a murderer's row of saxophone talent from your generation. I mean, I was definitely murdered. I was definitely murdered. And I don't know what happened. I didn't, bri- I swear to God, I did not bribe anyone. <laughs> Greg, I did not. You know, uh, um, I mean, I, I was, I mean, whatever. I'm not going to tell you who I thought should have won, but it, but it wasn't me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it wasn't me. Well, we, we think about competition and there's a, a, another C word, camaraderie, that I want to bring mm-hmm. up. You know, being a tenor saxophonist, you know, historically, we think about Lockjaw and Griffin and Ammons and mm-hmm. Stid and even Sonny and Coltrane. Yeah, there may yeah. have been a little bit of friendly fire, but there mm-hmm. was a, a brotherhood, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. surrounding that tenor saxophone. Any memories of uh, friendships that you made or memorable exchanges being uh, in the midst of your peers, as you mentioned, Eric Alexander and, and Chris Potter and so forth? I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, I know this sounds totally basic and cliche, but it, it's all love, you know? It really is. Hmm. Like, the jazz community is, from my experience, I mean, not across the board, but among those who are really serious and can really play, I feel like um, there's just, there's so much camaraderie, as you say, and warmth and support and empathy and humility and i mean i i I certainly felt that i mean i've always felt that uh, as a as a jazz musician um you know i mean there are there are a few exceptions to that rule which will will remain unnameable at least for my lips right now (laughs) you know there are a few (laughs) of my of Mm -hmm. my peers where maybe i haven't felt that way um but that's cool you know um look I, i i guess Yes, I mean, I guess this this idea of of competition is somehow baked in to jazz culture, or maybe more so jazz myth. You know, the jazz lore, mm. this idea of the cutting session, and in particular the tenor battle. And you know, we yes, I mean, we're aware of this. You know, Lockjaw and Griffin. I mean, back in the day, you know, there's the 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 story of like you know. Um, Coleman Hawkins coming down to Kansas City and Lester Young basically like holding court there. And, you know, I mean, we've got, you know, uh, and and Sonny and Nuke and Train on Tenor Madness. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's there. I mean, but can we really get in the mind of those musicians like at the time? How competitive really were they? How much of, it, of this is something that is constructed by the storytellers who weren't necessarily the musicians, you know, yeah. um, it's fine. You know, I mean, look, uh, I, I'm not saying competition has no place in the music. I can say that it's not a spirit with which I approach music. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I camaraderie, yes, but more, even more so coll- collaboration, you know, I mean, even mm-hmm. if I'm playing with and conversation, like if I'm playing with another saxophone player, um, like it's another tenor player. My even if it's billed as a tenor battle, like my goal is not to like cut the other person, you know, or to try to you know come out on top. My all my best ideas come 
from other musicians. You know, I used to think I had, I was naked without external musical input. So like, if I'm playing with someone else, I'm inspired by them and trying to have a dialogue with them. That's that's true in every situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it can't be true in a situation where you've got a line of individual saxophone players coming up to bat, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's like, I mean, I can't have a conversation with Eric Alexander or Chris Potter if I'm not playing with them. But I feel like the spirit um, was just full of love and friendship and support and you know, I mean, we 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 cho choose this music, or this music chooses us, um, uh, because we fall in love with it. Not we don't we're, we're not enamored with our own sounds and our own capabilities and our own prowess. You know, it's 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 a music, yeah, it, it's a it's a gift for us. And I think most most of my favorite jazz musicians approach it with that sense of gratitude and humility and camaraderie. Absolutely. And, you know, when you say that the music chooses us, I, I can't help but feel that there is a, a kind of destiny in the story you're telling because <laughs> it just so happens that the, the saxophone competition falls during this summer when yeah. you are taking this gap year and yeah. like, you know, woodshedding in a house full of musicians. Yeah. And the outcome of this competition was really pretty amazing yes. right because yeah. legendarily you know after you win the competition there's a literally a bidding war from record labels yeah. just the interest in your musicianship mm -hmm. and also as you say like the story around you too mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and the person who ends up winning this bidding war is matt pearson mm -hmm. who goes on to produce your first records for warner brothers yes and this is a, you know, it's a really game-changing kind of moment yeah. um, in jazz culture. I, mm. I, I remember being in high school, engrossed by the whole story, you know, and like, oh my God, like, wow. So, I mean, what was that like for you, being the sort of the bell of the ball? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a trip. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and it's a trip I'm still on, I guess, <laughs> you know, it's um, yeah, I mean, you know, like destiny, I mean, I'm not sure I believe in destiny. I also am not sure I believe in free will, but that's a, that's a, that's a subject for another <laughs> podcast, you know. Well, um, I mean, but, is but, it but, but, do, but, yeah. is there <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. If things had gone a different way in that competition, like would you have just had fun that summer and then gone to law school? I mean, is that I really want to sit here and say and I feel like I can say with some measure of confidence that the answer would be no mm -hmm. because I mean, I was already playing, as, yeah. I was, as I said before. You know, I'd already done, a, I mean, I was already doing gigs with my dad. I was doing gigs around town with a, a lot of folks. I'd already done, like, my first little tour uh, with Jeff Keezer mm. actually hired me. Um, uh, Leon Parker was in yeah. there, too. Um, yeah, so we did a little, little tour of the Midwest. So, you know, I was already starting to work. Um, some of some older musicians had already started calling. Charlie Hayden had hired me to sub for the Liberation Orchestra. Um, there was a tour with uh, Paul Motion that was going to come up in the spring, and 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 maybe one and one with that Jack DeJanette. So like things were starting to happen for yeah. me, and I was already falling in love with playing this music, and and also just overwhelmed with the realization that I had the opportunity to do mm. it and in a way to bypass a lot of 
dues paying that I certainly probably needed to be doing, but that wasn't necessarily what I wanted mm -hmm. to be doing, you know? Um, I think I spent a lot, a lot of time early on after the competition trying to minimize its importance, not out of any disrespect for the competition, uh, but just because I felt like, you know, obviously it got a lot of attention and it didn't in any way change the way that I thought or felt about my own musical abilities or more importantly, the lack thereof. I, I, you brought up dues paying earlier and I sort of have a bit of a flip side question, if you will, if you can indulge me. Um, do competitions at all maybe even rob the musical community of designating its next heroes? Why or why not? Mm. Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I don't think so. Okay. Because, um, uh, in fact, I'm going to say no, because like winning a jazz competition, I don't believe has been proven to be any sort of guaranteed recipe for success, mm -hmm. you know, either for, I mean, commercial success in jazz is almost an oxymoron, right? But <laughs> either for success, for uh, either for success career-wise or for the ultimate success, which is artistic success and and the respect and admiration and acceptance of your, your musical community. For the most part, I think most of the competition winners, and I'm not, you know, I don't keep score. Mm -hmm. You all probably do a better job than, than I do with that. But most of them can play and and, and, yeah. and and are good musicians. But, I mean, the list of um, truly game-changing jazz musicians who have not won, some not even been accepted to, like, the, the, the semifinal round mm -hmm. of some of these competitions is pretty... You can't. You, you cannot dismiss that. Let's right. put it that way. I mean, I don't want to name names. I, I say, you know, but I, you know, there, there, there are quite a few. Okay, mm -hmm. who 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 have gone on, who haven't placed highly, or even you know, you know, been recognized by the competition, and yet are the absolute heroes of this music and the mm -hmm. guiding lights and the game changers and the paradigm shifters. Mm -hmm. So I think it's 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 another. I mean, uh, it, it was a tremendous honor for me to be able to be there and obviously um you know a huge surprise and 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 and, and yeah a gift to have been recognized there but it's you know it's another it's a feather in the cap maybe it's a little tool in the career toolbox but um i think the musical community ultimately you know, and when I say the community, I mean the community of artists uh -huh. and the community of listeners and the community of journalists and of observers. Like that community will choose its heroes, and and and, and the narrative will unfold uh, organically and naturally and from the heart of this music. I don't think the competitions. I don't think that they're they're paradigm shifters. Yeah. I think what they can do is, in certain cases, musicians that are already for whatever reason, poised to capture a cultural moment or the, the imagination of the community. If they do place well in the competition, if they do win, that can be, mm -hmm. um, you know, fuel, fuel for the fire. For me as a listener and as a critic, certainly, you know, competitions have a certain utility. Mm -hmm. Utility, that's the word. Yeah, mm -hmm. because, because they do kind of identify um, people who have a certain like ability to rise to the occasion, right? right. 
right. and 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 sail through the obstacle course. You right. know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 cool when it happens and it works, right? But I think a great thing is that you're putting the spotlight on the generation behind you. And sometimes I worry, just as a listener, that maybe even competitions have uh, helped us to be mm, a bit more complacent about finding the next talent or searching the next, you know, who's who on his or her or their instrument. Um, the music business, of course, is completely different than it was in the 90s. Um, what responsibility, Joshua, do we all have as listeners, as contributors to this community to keep our ears and eyes critically open to the next voices? Mm-hmm. I would be very hesitant to say oh, a jazz listener or someone who's, you know, loyal to this music has a responsibility to always be looking out for, like, the next great young voices, you know? I mean, if that's what you're interested in or if you hear one and it, and, and they move you, beautiful. But, like, if you just want to listen to, like, you know, Ben Webster played with strings for, like, you know, the next two decades. Yeah. I'm all on, yeah. I'm on board with that, bro. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, I'm right with you. Yeah, I'm you know, um, so uh, it's it's tough. Um, and, you know, like for me, I want to hear what's what's out there now. I'm, I'm hugely influenced by and inspired by my peers. And now as I age by, by younger musicians. So it's kind of something that's always mm. been part of my honest, natural, yeah, uh, uh, leanings and, 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 and desires. Like, that's natural to me. But, like, maybe some of my greatest heroes don't have that, you know? I mean, I, who knows? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think mm-hmm. of someone like Keith Jarrett, okay? Yeah. Like, yeah. was Keith Jarrett, was he out there, you know, checking, like, you know, reading, yeah, you know checking, true. like, you know, going to, he wasn't going to the, he wasn't going down the smalls, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, sure, like, you sure. know I mean, you know, and, and, you know, this is one of the greatest, greatest artists and musicians of, of, of our time in any genre, right? So, that's look, right. you just kind of be... Right. You got it again, a cliche, but I think it's about being being true and natural to yourself. Well, that raises an interesting question, though, because, um, uh, you know, I have served on a competition jury and and Joshua, you, you served on the Monk competition jury in 96 and again mm-hmm. in 2002. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could shed light on on what that experience was like, you know, bringing the kind of, um, you know, adjudication mindset to what you understand to be not a quantitative kind of art absolutely the antithesis of that like so what was it like putting on that hat and sitting in that room around that table well you know um it wasn't the hat didn't fit so well you know (laughs) especially especially (laughs) i mean i actually have that problem actually like like uh you know (laughs) low-key like i can't actually find a baseball cap that fits me (laughs) (laughs) it's like when i find one i just buy it because i know it'll be another three years you know (laughs) um but uh Wow. I mean, it was deep. Like, I remember the first, uh, I mean, like the first year, it was like, I don't even remember who that, I think it was, maybe Jackie Mack was there. I mean, some of the, some of the folks who were, who were the judges when I won in 91, um, maybe Jimmy Heath was also there again. Uh, I know that Joe Lovano was there. This was when mm-hmm. I, when I judged in 95. Yeah. Um, and I, okay, but here it is. And I won't go into the details, but like at one point, you know, you're sitting around a table and talking about these musicians. And at one point, I realized that I was arguing 
with Wayne Shorter. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And I was just like, what the F are you, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I was, you know, but, but we had a difference of opinion, yeah. you know, yeah. and, 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 and I, and so I felt like, well, it's my responsibility to at least like voice what my opinion is. That's what, and then I just was like, wait, this is so absurd. You know, <laughs> like, this is like my all time, you know, greatest composer in jazz, you know, greatest voice, most poetic, you know, most ethereal. So like, it, it was, it was weird. Yeah, <laughs> it was weird. I think the second time around, I was more prepared for it, and and maybe Wayne wasn't a judge that year, so it was a little easier. No, he was. He was. <laughs> yeah, well, it's and it's. I wasn't ever in a room when Wayne was was a judge, um, but I've been in a room with some other pretty heavy, uh, you know, heavy cats, and yeah, and you realize like it, it really is subjective, absolutely, and it is about trying to find a kind of truth in that experience. It's absolutely subjective. You know, you cannot, obviously you're there for not only your, whatever sort of like expertise or knowledge you have in terms of the, the language of the music and the practices of the music, but also you have an aesthetic and you have a, you have your tastes and you can't not represent them. You know? Yeah. And, and, and also you have your, you know, maybe you also have a certain sense of, not an agenda about yeah. like what this music is or what the values of the, of the music are or what it should be. But, you know, I mean, this, you haven't, you have your stories, you know, we're human beings. We tell that it's, that's all we have is the stories we tell ourselves, you know, and the, and, and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves mm. and the stories we tell ourselves about the world and, and that we inhabit. Yeah. And so you've yeah. got your narratives, possible narratives, and there's no way that you're not, in some way trying to reconcile these individual voices that you, musical voices that you're hearing and being presented with that you're in some way trying to find some 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 reconciliation between them and some sort of narratives that you might have about about the music so mm. um yeah you are pretty into running you've you've been doing like marathons and half marathons mm. I, I have I got bitten I got bitten by the bug during the pandemic I I must admit yeah yeah and and I have some family that that's really you know into the the marathon situation I know it's not it's if you do it right it's not something you approach lightly mm-hmm. and so since we're talking about competition what parallels can you draw between yeah, you know the, the marathon training and mm-hmm. and competitive drive mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the sort of what we've been talking about. Right, right. That's a great question. Yeah, um, you know, growing up, I was pretty much a lousy competitor. I was a horrible athlete, you know? I just, I, I just, I was, I had no athletic talent, you know? <laughs> and I also didn't have, I did not have a competitive mindset, you know? Yeah. And I, I just, I, you know, I, I, I didn't have the skills and I also didn't have any sort of will to win. You know, mm-hmm. so that's one of the reasons why I felt like, oh, you know, music and maybe in particular jazz music is like, you know, a good fit for me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe I had a maybe I had a certain sort of competitive drive with academics, but it was really it, it was kind of it was always more self competent, like 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 trying to not never being happy with my performance and trying to right. increase that. And I guess that's true with music as well. I think that, you know, I, I still consider myself a, a crappy athlete. I seem to be doing all right for my age in this running thing. I, I think a lot of that is just, you know, my 
powers of delayed gratification and my capacity for, <laughs> for, 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 you know, my slightly masochistic tendencies, you know, could come into, you know, endurance, endurance athletics is a, is a, is a very interesting thing because you're not, I mean, unless you're, you know, um, Elliot Kipchoge or, you know, like, I mean, you know, unless you're like the elites in the pack and you're literally like racing, other runners, you know, I mean, like I ran in the Boston Marathon, that's 30,000 runners. I mean, you're running in a sea of runners, but it's like, you're not racing anybody, you know, you're, you're racing yourself, right, you know, right. you have your own sense of like what your capacities are and what they might be. And you're tr so, so in that sense, I guess it's not so much unlike music, you know, ultimately like my drive with music has been you know, just this incredible, I mean, I don't want to say self-loathing, but def definitely self-criticism. You know, I'm never, never happy with the way I play. I mm -hmm. love playing, but, I, but I'm never satisfied. And I've always, yeah, just tried to, to try to be okay, you know? And I guess I do feel like having gotten into in specifically marathon training, I, I feel like it's given me a lot of insight into the process of practice because I've never been a good pr music practicer. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I didn't, I, I, I've always been good at like throwing myself in musical situations and playing, but I've never, I, I never really practiced and I never liked practicing. And I never, for uh, as someone who's a relatively dedicated, disciplined person in certain ways, practicing was never something that I, that I had dialed in in that respect. But I guess like, the pandemic simultaneously, I really started practicing because that was all, all I could do, um, mm -hmm. you know, on a regular basis. And when I started running, you know, that's a form of practice too. And, you know, especially when you're marathon training, there's um, so much of it is, it's just so, it's the long game. It's the really, really long game, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I, I feel like it has informed my musical practice in some very important ways. I, I'm not sure if I can articulate exactly what those are yet. Yeah, that, that idea of discipline and and then like the the self the self um, improvement. I guess you know, like mm -hmm. to call it competition is maybe a misnomer because it's really just about pushing yourself. Yeah. Um, toward an incremental improvement, you know? Very, like, very incremental. Just a, just a little and, bit better this time, yeah. you know? And, and I'll tell you something, like, as the one thing that I've noticed is, you know, as I've aged, the incrementalism <laughs> of my improvement has um, shot up dramatically. Does that make sense? Mm. Like, like yeah. it takes longer and longer to reach whatever that next plateau, you know, if even if you can call it that, it's just like, mm -hmm. you know, there are obviously losses as you age, right? There are physical declines and cognitive declines, you know, I mean, it's, it's just the nature of the brain and the body, but you know, there are, there are ways in which you're going to continue to improve and get better, but it just takes so long, so much longer. Yeah. So I think that the, the marathon training has probably taught me that sort of patience or, or kind of reinforced it kind of in parallel. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like the parallel I'm hearing is to a to a musical career. <laughs> as we talk about these competitions, yeah. they're they're generally the musical competitions are generally for younger musicians yes. who may be inclined to think of it as a sprint. Yeah. And really what you're saying is like, no man, you know, a life in this music is a marathon. <laughs> you've gotta you've gotta be prepared for the long haul. And 
you know, all of the challenges and all of the rewards that come with that longer arc. That is one of the luxuries of being a jazz musician, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it, I mean, it's true of all artists and all musicians and all artists to an extent, but jazz musicians, I think, I mean, history has shown we have the opportunity, I think, to really have long lives and careers in this music playing at uh, playing at a high level and and um, making interesting, creative, relevant music, I, th I think. Yeah, no, you, you, you're not only saying it, but you're showing it. <laughs> Joshua, I am so glad that you won that competition. <laughs> I am too. I am too, Nate. For, <laughs> for all of the, for all of the reasons that, uh, you know, that, that led you here uh, mm -hmm. to this moment. Absolutely. Um, well, Joshua, um, we wanted to thank you. Absolutely, man, for being an ambassador in this music for so long and uh, for showing us uh, that there are uh, people with uh, ingenuity, uh, executive function, and creativity mm. all in one package um, to bring this music to the people. You've been doing it for a long time, and uh, we take off our hat to you, man. Thank you so much for your continued contribution. Oh, right on, right on, Greg. Yeah, I'm not sure about I'm not sure about the executive function. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to speak with both of you. Thank you for everything you do for the music. Thanks for joining us for the late set. Check us out next month for an episode all about holiday music. Your favorite. <laughs> the late set is a production of WRTI and made possible by WRTI members. It's hosted by yours truly, Greg Bryant and Nate Chinen. The show is produced by Alex Arif. WRTI's operations manager is Joe Patty and director of production is Tyler McClure. Associate general manager for content and programming is Josh Jackson. Bill Johnson is WRTI's general manager. Our website, thelateset.org. While you're there, you can see everything else WRTI has cooking here in Philadelphia and beyond. We'll see you soon.